growing up as a child, life was very hard. And many other times that if we didn't have food, then we'd go to scavenge in the, in the dumping site. I didn't have food the day before, neither the other day before. I only knew that I was hungry and I needed food. As a child, I grew up with a lot of hopelessness and I knew that death was the best thing for me. At the age of seven, I lost three family members. I lost my mom and I lost my stepdad. I lost my small brother, Patrick, because of the terrifying disease of HIV AIDS. In the middle of prostitution. Feeling so helpless. Poverty made me feel less valued. It made me feel not loved. It made me feel uh, less of a human. not eaten dinner and knowing you'll not have lunch and you're not assured for dinner the following day, it's just feeling very helpless, like things are not going to be better. I lost four of my siblings due to preventable diseases. Uh, three of them died before the age of five. My sister, we were sleeping with her in the same bed and she, she had died. Things changed later when I joined the program. When I started attending the Compassion Project, I was learning about the Bible, but the most important thing for me was that I was receiving food. I got an opportunity to go to school uh, with a pair of school uniform, with a pair of shoes. My mother heard about a church that worked with children. They're taking care about me, tutors, a pastor, a compassion director. Words are very powerful. My life was changed because someone told me, I believe in you, I love you, and I know you will succeed in life. My sponsor was a college student from Michigan, and in the first letter, she just told me that she wanted to make room for me. My sponsor, he was eight years old when I was nine, so he was one year younger than me. One decision to make room for one more changed my life. Saved my life. Saved my life. Will you make room for a child that needs you? Will you make room for one more? It's up to you. My name is Rafael. My name is David. My life was changed by a 26 years old college student. Her name is Joan. Gail and Roger. Her name is Jamie. My sponsor made room for one more. And that one more. And that one more was me. Was me. Sponsor a child through compassion today. Release a child from poverty in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Greetings, Chapel Street Church. Happy Easter. My name is Jonathan, 
And as you just saw, I was one of those children that someone made room for. I was born with all the odds not to be in front of you today. My dad wanted my mom to abort me. My mother's poverty affected me because of her lack of calcium. I spent most of my life walking without shoes. I was hungry for days. I worked as a dumpster diver. I spent part of my childhood selling juice on the streets. I was born out of my father's family and he hid me from them for 14 years. At the age of 12, he told me that I was a mistake in his life. And when I finally got into the Compassion Center, I spent five years fighting. I almost got out of the Compassion Center. Poverty was winning in my life. But God provided Jamie, my sponsor, when I was nine. He used my Compassion Center director, Dulcie, to heal me and show me Christ. Through my sponsor letters, I was told that God is my father. I was not a mistake. I forgave my father and both share a good relationship today. I studied public policy in Washington, D.C., and I hold a bachelor's degree in linguistics thanks to compassion. Most significantly, I am a follower of Christ, and I was baptized at the age of 12. My life changed because a mother from Michigan decided to make room for me. My mother graduated from university while I was attending the Compassion Center, and today she's a teacher. By the grace of God, I am a husband and a father of two. My second song is due this month. All of these, while I serve compassion in the Dominican Republic to release more children from poverty in Jesus' name. Thank you for sponsoring all these children from Ecuador and making room in your life for one more. God bless you. Well, again, as Eric mentioned uh, beforehand, Compassion is our Serve the World partner this spring. Um, and our goal has been to um, sponsor 500 um, kids in the nation of Ecuador. You may know that Chapel Street has a long history with Ecuador. It's a place where we've partnered. And um, for the first two weeks, we are at about 375 kids that have been sponsored. And so we're hoping today to get that extra 125 more. And so as you're here this morning, as you're praying and thinking, is this something that, that we have the possibility to do? Can we make room as an individual, as a family, as a group of friends, sometimes a small group? I've seen it happen in any number of ways. But I wanna invite you today, stop, stop by the tables out back. Look, look at the packets. Um, those represent stories just like Jonathan's. The opportunity to um, come alongside of someone in the midst of dire and destructive poverty and to help offer uh, something different, something new. And what I love about what Compassion does is that it, it, it approaches these, these individuals holistically through education, nutrition, support systems, and it also operates within the local churches in these places. And I think it's a beautiful pattern. Um, so I'll invite you to, to be praying about that today, and I'll, I'll remind us um, at the end of the service. Would you pray with me? And we'll enter into the text this morning. Father, we do just thank you um, on this Easter morning for the opportunity to gather together to declare and worship that you are our risen Savior. We want to acknowledge that, and we want to live in view of that, Jesus. Remind us that you accomplished a victory that we could not, and you offer it to us. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. The Apostle Paul uh, wrote a letter to the church in Corinth, and, and he said, I think somewhat emphatically, 
He said, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. That's a bold statement. According to Paul, he's, he's saying this, everything that we've been preaching, everything that we've been telling you, everything that we've been declaring, it all hinges on the resurrection, on the actual physical, historical resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, if you're new here with us this morning, one, welcome. We're so glad that you're here, and we would love to get to know you uh, more. We hope we have the opportunity to meet you personally. Um, but we are today, we're wrapping up, we're finishing up a study that we've been in in the Gospel of Mark. And appropriately so, Mark concludes his retelling of the life of, of Jesus with the, the story of these faithful few women who are coming to the graveside of Jesus only to find that he isn't there. And according to the person who is there in that moment, that he has in fact risen. And I, I would venture to guess that for most of you today, you came here this morning with some level of expectation that you're going to hear the news proclaimed that Jesus is written, risen. And I would, I would speculate that if, if that's not what you heard this morning, you would feel you would leave somewhat disappointed and, and perhaps shocked. But that is, of course, not how these early disciples approached the grave on that first Easter morning. They came there expecting to find a corpse. But what they discovered instead left them, as the text says, seized with trembling and astonishment. So I want to I invite you, church. I want to invite you to enter into this experience, if we can, just mentally and emotionally and spiritually, if we can just enter in, come into the experience of discovering the truth that Jesus is alive. In Chicago now, and I think this is, takes place in, in major cities across the United States, they've done these art exhibits that are called immersive exhibits. Is anybody, like the immersive Van Gogh, in fact, I brought a picture of the Van Gogh uh, display that was in the Chicago. I don't know. Have any of you been seeing the immersive? Okay, several of you have. And, and what's incredible about this is that the, the idea behind it is not that you would observe art in the typical fashion, right? From a distance where it's out in front of you and, you, and you're seeing it, but rather that you would be surrounded in it, that you would walk through it, that you would allow yourself to experience or to immerse yourself in this art and, and perhaps in doing so that you might see it and discover it in a new way that's what i want to i want to invite you into this morning i want us to enter into this moment that our entire faith hinges on so let's immerse ourselves this morning i'm going to pick up where we left off last week when we were talking about the crucifixion so this is the end of mark chapter 15 and, and this is, as I said, concluding, wrapping up our study of the gospel of Mark. But this is what he writes. This is so this he started. We're starting here just after the death of Christ. He says, when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, 
who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage. And he went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, and he summoned the centurion. And he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in the tomb that had been cut out of, of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. And when the Sabbath was passed, so now we're Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they may go and anoint him. And very early on, on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. And there you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb for fear, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. First off, can Mark's gospel, a little bit unlike Matthew and Luke and John, it, it, it feels to me like it ends on kind of a cliffhanger here. Like if you, the earliest manuscripts of the gospel of Matthew end right here at verse 8. Later manuscripts include the, the verses that you'll see that follow that. But the earliest ones suggest that Mark ended the gospel right here. Whether Mark added these other verses or it was added by a scribe or a Pharisee based on the other gospels, we don't know. But Mark's gospel just kind of drops off like a movie that you're watching that just leaves you with all these sort of unresolved questions because you know that they're going to make a, a sequel out of it, right? And as we enter into to Mark's conclusion of his gospel, I want to just take a moment to remind ourselves how it began. All the way back in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, we looked at this last week. It says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. If you remember that word, gospel, that, that is a, a political word. It, it was used as a proclamation. So what we're talking about here, this, this, is, this is about a king. And it's about his kingdom. And then verses 14 and 15. He goes on to say this in, in chapter 1. Now, after John was arrested, referring to John the Baptist, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. The entire gospel has been moving forward based on this assertion from Jesus that he is ushering in the kingdom of God. It's all been pointing to this point. And so as we've worked our way through this, really at this, this point in the gospel narrative, there's only one question that remains unanswered. 
Was it successful? Did it, did it work? Is the king victorious? And if he is, so what evidence, what proof do we have? How can we be confident in his victory? And Mark, in, in very typical Mark fashion, just succinctly and concisely says, because the grave is empty. Because the grave is empty. But that, that morning did not start in a place of victory. It didn't start with the assumption of victory, but rather those women came to the tomb with the certainty of defeat. They came with the certainty of defeat. I don't know if you've ever had the experience like where you're watching a movie or you're reading an author, reading a book, and as you kind of start going through it, you sort of feel like it, it patterns a story that you've heard before, and you're, somebody's just kind of like the director's just ripping off a movie that's already been done, and the author's just telling a story that you've heard a thousand times, and as you read a book like that or you watch a movie like that, there's a part of you inside of you that just kind of, it gets predictable, right? And so as you hear it, as you listen to it, you think to yourself, like, I, I know how this story is. Like, I've, I've heard this a thousand times. The outcome is obvious. See, I think in a sense this is where we find the disciples on Sunday morning. In the decades that preceded the life of Christ, and, and actually in, in the years that followed as well, and within Jerusalem and, and surrounding area within Israel, there was a number, dozens, of messianic movements. Right? There was any number of other charismatic leaders who proclaimed that they were the sent one of God. There was leaders who began to have a movement and build a following. They built some notoriety around with the people. And without fail, every single one of these movements ended in exactly the same way. With the, the death of the leader, usually by some form of execution, and its followers becoming disillusioned, afraid and scattered you had two options when this happened either you nominated somebody else to be the leader in the absence of this other person or you just disbanded and went away and eventually that was the the same inevitable fate of all of them and sunday morning it very much looks like these followers of Jesus, this announcement of the arrival of the kingdom of God, that it's all going to follow the same pattern. That we know how this story ends. Look at 16 verse 1 again. It writes, When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. Right, so does it appear to be any question about what they're expecting to find here. And despite the fact that Jesus has said in, in pretty overt and clear terms to his disciples, like if you think back to chapter 8, again, we've looked at this verse as well over the last couple of weeks. He said to his disciples, he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He said it in chapter 8. He says it in chapter 9. He says it in chapter 10. He keeps repeating, this is, this is what you need to be ready for. But even with that heads up, right, about what was going to happen, most of his followers aren't coming to the grave at all. There seems to be no anticipation, no expectation 
that, that Jesus is going to raise from the dead. And the ones that do come to the grave, they're not coming to see if Jesus is alive. This, this faithful group of women who have followed Jesus since the time he began to preach in Galilee, they're, they're coming to finish the burial process. In fact, they, they have that moment as they're approaching the grave where they just sort of realize, remember, some of these were witnesses when, Je when Jesus was laid in the grave. And they realize this stone has been rolled in front of the grave, and are we even going to be able to gain access? Can we even get to the tomb? It's been, it's been sealed. Are we just wasting our time here? And so at this moment, at this point, the, di the disciples assume that the movement that had compelled them to leave everything, the movement that had caused them to risk everything for the sake of Jesus, the idea and the hope of the resurrection to them felt like an impossibility. The expectation, the assumption that they came with is one of death, and it was one of defeat. Personally, on a, on a side note, I think that this is one of the most compelling pieces of evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, is the difference between all of these various first century messianic movements where there were people who claimed to be the sent one from God and the end result of them and then what happens with this band of followers who at this point in time in the story are scattered and afraid and confused and within a hundred years within the first century of of this moment you can find pockets of these Jesus followers throughout the entire Roman Empire what would later be called the church, planted throughout. Not only did they not disband, but they began to spread exponentially in ways that history has never seen before throughout the entire Roman Empire. Here's the thing. I, I think for you and I, oftentimes what draws us to Jesus, or our, if we had time this morning to stand around and, and tell our stories and where, what has compelled us, what's brought us to Jesus, don't we oftentimes come from a place of defeat, of uncertainty and fear, and even the conviction that, that we're hopeless? This is where we find the disciples this meaning. I think it's important for us to recognize that. But in the midst of that, in the midst of that expectation, there's an invitation to see. An invitation to come and see. Look at verse, um, back in verse 5 of chapter 16. It says, In entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Again, if, we're, if, if we can try to immerse ourselves into this story, if we can try to find ourselves in the midst of what they're experiencing, right? you, you, you know, if you've ever experienced anything like this, something that you know to be 100% certain, something that you are absolutely sure of, only then to go and find that that's not the case and exact opposite is the case. If you've ever experienced that, you know how disorienting that feeling is. Many of you have heard me tell this story before, but when Sherry and I were expecting our very first child, 
uh, we had kind of a disagreement about whether or not we were going to find out the gender. I wanted to find out the, the gender. Sherry didn't. So we did not find out the gender. <laughs> and in the last um, ultrasound before Emma was born, um, we were sitting there and the, the ultrasound tech asked us, do you want to know, is it a boy or a girl? We said, hey, we've, we've decided uh, we don't want to know. It's like, is it is the whole thing? I kind of wanted to know. She doesn't want to know. So we're not going to find out. Sherry leaves the room and the ultrasound text, just so you know, you're having a boy. And I was like, why did you say that? Like, and I never uttered a word to a, a single human being. I never told anyone that we were having a boy, but I was very much prepared to have a boy. So fast forward, July 2nd, 2002, baby is born. Doctor hands me this beautiful baby places uh, her in my arms and he looks at me and says dad what did you have silence <laughs> like I, I just stood there in shock like I was like I don't know I don't I don't know what we had and Sherry looks across the room and sees me holding him and goes it's a girl and I was like it's a girl that <laughs> it makes so much sense like we can we can relate how disoriented we are. And think about this moment if you can. Right, when the despair that, that described their approach to this moment. And now they come and, and the stone is rolled away and they're in this mix of fear and confusion. And then there's finally, there's clarity. When they hear the words from this, what describes as a young man sitting on in the, on the right side of the tomb, uh, Luke's gospel, Matthew's gospel, tell us that it was an angel. He's dressed in a white robe, which we all know that's what angels wear, I guess, right? And he announces, he makes the proclamation, he is risen. He is not here. See, come see. Look, look at the place where they laid him. He's not there anymore. See, throughout this entire gospel, Jesus has been teaching, he's been displaying how things are in his kingdom. He, he's been showing his disciples how he's undoing the damage of sin and, and brokenness that's been left in its wake. And so as he starts his ministry, he, he has four friends that bring this man before him, a paralytic, and he, he says to him, take up your mat and walk, and he walks. He actually reached out and he touches a man with leprosy and his leprosy is gone. He, he frees people with the power of his word from the torment of, of the forces of evil, from demonic oppression. He feeds thousands of people with a couple of fish and some loaves of bread. He told the wind and the waves to be still and they listened. The blind received sight. The oppressed and the marginalized are validated and defended and dignified. A grieving father whose daughter had passed away is returned to his arms. And the list goes on and on and on. And now all of these, these proclamations of hope, all these experiences of healing and freedom it's all been guaranteed. It's all culminating in the, this moment and in these words. He has risen. He is not here. Come and see. Come and see where they laid him. 
Look for yourself. The, the vision that Jesus taught, this kingdom vision, has now claimed eternal victory in his raising from the dead. It means that the whole story of the world that Mark has been telling, that he's recorded in his gospel, it means it's all true. It means the victory that he promised, that he taught, has been realized. I love the way the Apostle Paul describes this to the church in, in Colossians. He says this. He said, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all your sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Well said, right? The victory has been secured. He says, come and see the hope that Jesus preached has been validated in the empty tomb. He is not risen. Or, he is risen. He is not here. Uh, you got to be careful on that one. <laughs> but I love the way Mark ends his gospel here. And, and I think this is important because it, it drives to this moment at the end in this proclamation. It really leads us to a personal encounter. It leads us to a personal encounter. Look at verse 7 and 8 again. He says, but go tell his disciples and Peter... He's going before you to Galilee, and there you'll see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment has seized them. And they said nothing to anyone. They ran away from there until they got to the disciples, because they were afraid. They don't even know, what do we do with this? How are we to understand this? And I've said this before, but if you remember Mark's gospel, Peter the disciple Peter is the source material for this. This is his eyewitness account of the life of Christ. And notice how he records the instructions given to these women there. He says in verse 7, But go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. If you remember the last time we saw Peter, in Mark's gospel, it wasn't his best moment. In fact, he denies even knowing Jesus. And the way Mark's gospel records these instructions, these words, I think it's intentional. I think Peter wants us to understand that despite where he was at, I, I think the way that he says this, I didn't even consider myself to be among the disciples at this point. I was disqualified, and I was outside of community. But despite his own sense of failing, despite the shame that was weighing him down, he wants it to be crystal clear that the invitation that was spoken to these women by this angel from Jesus, he wants us to be understand, he wants us to understand that it was for him. He wants us to hear that Jesus wanted to meet with him. And I think he does this because he wants us to understand that the same is true for us. Right? Peter, in this moment, in his life, he feels like I am outside of the scope of grace. I'm, out, I'm outside, I'm beyond forgiveness. But Jesus says, I, I want 
I want you to see for yourself. I, I want you to see the victory I've won. That I've won for you. Come and meet with me. I'm going to meet you in Galilee. The Gospel of John, the Apostle John says this. In John 11. Jesus is with Martha, who is the sister of, of Lazarus, who he had raised from the dead. And he said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And he says to her, do you believe this? Do you believe it? There's a story um, of a French acrobat slash tightrope walker that, that came to the United States in June of 1859. His kind of stage name was the Great uh, Blondine. He was a French tightrope walker, and he saw for the first time, he saw Niagara Falls. And he said, I want to I walk a tightrope across Niagara Falls. So he put out, used his own money, put out these flyers throughout the local region, inviting people to come. And, and people were incredibly skeptical, thinking this guy's surely going to fall to his death. This person's insane. And, and they paid a small price, like five cents, to come and watch this. And in the very first time he did it, there was 10,000 people that showed up to watch him walk across. And he goes across successful. And he would start each tightrope walk. He would ask the question, do you believe? Do you think I can walk across this rope? And the, the people sort of begin in the initial time somewhat skeptically and say, yeah, yeah, we believe. Like, give it a shot. He does it. He walks back, and the crowd's going crazy. And so he starts to up the ante. Then the following week, he, he puts on stilts, and he says, do you think I can do this? He starts to do tricks, basically. He rides a bike across this tightrope. He, he puts on the stilts. At one point in time, he actually took like a, uh, a little stove out onto the tightrope in the middle over the uh, Niagara Falls. He cooked an omelet, ate it, and then walked back. Like right now you're just showing off kind of thing, right? And then he put out the invitation. He said, I can walk across Niagara Falls carrying a man on my back. And he asked the question, do you believe? Do you believe? Can I do it? And people at this point in time, the crowds are upwards of 100,000 people, and they're going nuts. We believe. We believe. We believe. And he said, can I get a volunteer? And the crowd goes quiet. <laughs> right? One man raises his hand. It was the great Blondine's manager. He says, I, I believe we can do it. And he climbs on his back, and Blondine carries him all the way across on a tightrope. They said that the tightrope dropped about 60 feet in the center with the weight of the two men on the tightrope. And it was a particularly windy day. That's a committed manager right there, right? <laughs> walks all the way across and walks back. See, when Jesus asked this question about believing in me, he's not talking about mental assent. He's not talking about the idea of, like, I can give some directions. What he's saying is, do you trust me with your life? This was the invitation that Jesus extended to those first disciples when they came, when the, when the word went out, come and meet with me. Come meet with me in Galilee. This is the same invitation that he extends to us today. 
to place our trust, the wholeness of our life in him for the forgiveness of sins. It's what we celebrate in baptism. And it's the truth that defines us. The invitation is for you. The same invitation that he extended to those disciples is the invitation that he extends to you. Place your trust in me. Do you believe? If you're confident in what he can do, it doesn't mean we never struggle with doubt. doesn't mean that we never deal with frustration and questions and all of that. That's all part of the experience. But the resurrection, the conviction of it, is the evidence that says, I can, I can put my trust in you. We read this verse earlier, but I want to end with this, because Peter would later write this. Remember, this is, in many ways, we're hearing Peter's story. He's, he wrote this to the church. In 1 Peter chapter 1, he says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we do. Lord, we recognize our own ability to, to doubt and to question and to struggle, and yet when we consider the cross and we consider the victory of the empty tomb, Lord, we can say with confidence we believe we can place the whole aspect of our life in your hands. Jesus, we just want to celebrate you. We want to lift you up because of the victory that you have won on our behalf. Jesus, we want to, we want to celebrate and praise and worship you because our sins have been nailed to the cross and you have triumphed over them. The grave is empty. He is risen. He is not here. Come and see. It's in your name we pray. Amen.